Well, guys, we are closing in on the end of Romans. And I know that everyone's really sad about that. So we have two options. We could start over again in a couple of weeks. Or we could celebrate Advent. What do you think? I think we'll celebrate Advent. But it is kind of sad. This has been, this has been, a, great, um, this has been a great time for me just to go through Romans again and to do it with you guys. And I really appreciate, I've had a lot of feedback from you, a lot of encouragement from you over the last months. Uh, and I'm just delighted that God is working in your hearts. He's definitely been working in mine uh, through this series. But here's the good news. Paul brings his book to a close here in chapter 15. But then, and we'll talk about it in a minute, but then he actually writes a second ending. So it's kind of like second breakfast in the Lord of the Rings. Uh, we get a second ending to Romans next week. So I have one more week left. But this is Paul's, really his final comments as he's kind of laid out his whole theology of, of ministry, of the gospel, of what it means to be in Christ. And so today, uh, it's a little bit of, it's certainly not a laundry list but it's a little bit of him just kind of wrapping things up. But I do think it would, take, it would be in our best interest to do a really short recap of where we've been. So if you have your Bibles, I'm actually going to invite you to open up to Romans chapter 1. And if you remember, Romans was written because there was some conflict in the church in Rome. There was conflict between primarily Gentile believers who felt that they were not under obligation to, to do certain requirements, to fulfill certain requirements of the law, and Jewish believers who felt not only that they were, but that the Gentiles should too. And they had not only the express laws of the Scripture, but there were other traditions and other kind of rules that had come around the law that they were also trying to enforce on the other believers in the church in Rome. And so they had gotten to the point where things were pretty bad. It was, you know, there's, this conflict was rising. It was so bad that Paul heard about it. Paul's probably in Corinth when he's writing this. And he hears about what's going on in Rome. And he writes them this letter before he heads off, uh, leaving Corinth to go back to Jerusalem. And he says in verse 14 of Romans chapter 1, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. And it's a kind of an interesting way of putting it, but he's talking about the Gentiles and the Jews, the Greeks and the non-Greeks. Uh, he says, I, I'm obligated to both of you, and I've got a mission and a heart and a desire to preach to both of you. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is what Paul's been talking about this whole time. And as we saw the last couple of weeks, he culminates all of this in a charge to the people, accept one another as Christ has accepted you. That there's no room for this kind of conflict in the church. There's no room for us to be judging one another and treating one another with contempt because maybe we have different beliefs about what should happen uh, when the Bible doesn't obligate us to those things. And so to do that, he builds this case that he says, hey, 
Everyone has sinned. No one's righteous. So if you think that because you're under the law that you're righteous, well, you're wrong. Because the very law that you try to fulfill is the law that condemns you and shows you that you are not righteous in the sight of God. And if you're not under the law, even your own conscience condemns you because you can't even keep the law that you create for yourself. So no matter where you stand, the reality is we all are in a place before God of sin. In fact, Paul goes on to say in Romans 3 that no one even seeks God. If God didn't seek us out, we would all still be lost in our sin. And then he explains in chapter 4, this is one of these powerful and really impactful verses in my life. He says, the only people who are righteous are the wicked people who trust God and don't work for their salvation. He says, look, if you're not wicked, and if you're not working, I mean, if you're not wicked and you're trying to work to earn your salvation, then you're not trusting God. You're trusting in yourself. And Jesus said as much. He said, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for those who were not righteous. Salvation is only for those who acknowledge their own sin, acknowledge their own wickedness. They, they agree with God that they cannot earn it, so they don't try to work for it, but they trust Jesus. They trust God. They trust the gospel. And then from there, he tells us in Romans chapter 6 that in Christ, we've already died to the law. We've already died to sin. We've already died to our old selves. And now we're alive in Christ. We have the resurrection of Christ. And because we've died to the law and we've died to sin, we are finally free to live a life of righteousness, but only in so much as we continue to trust in him and not doing it on our own. He reminds us in chapter 7 that whenever we try to go back to the law, we actually, there's something in us that generates more sin. The law is like fuel for a, for a, for a sin motor. The more we feed that motor with the law, the more we have this output of sin. So he's encouraging us to look in a different direction for our righteousness entirely. But then in a passage we have today, he is going to talk about obedience. And so we, the key now as we close out, I think, is just to understand what does it look like to live the kind of life that Paul's encouraging us to live through his own life if all of this stuff is true. And again, I mentioned the last two weeks, we looked at the conflict and how Paul resolved the conflict in Rome by encouraging them to accept one another because Christ has accepted them. If Christ died for you while you were a sinner, how could you not accept someone else who's a sinner? And if Christ died for them so that they could be saved, how could you live a life that would lead them into further sin? And so he invites all of us to have our lives ordered by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and by the gift of the gospel. And so that's where we find ourselves today. So in Romans 15... Starting in verse 16, it says this. Paul writes, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Paul feels pretty confident, especially after writing this letter, that they have all the information they need 
to live the kind of life he's calling them to live. He's saying, you, you, are, you have the goodness inside of you and you have the knowledge that you need to instruct one another, to care for one another, to be good to one another. And I, he doesn't say it explicitly, but I do think that what he's talking about here also is that these people have the Holy Spirit because that goodness that he talks about there is a fruit of the Spirit. And Paul has just explained that we don't have it in ourselves to be the kind of good people that we want to be. But he says, I know that goodness is in you. And I believe what he means is it's because the Holy Spirit is in you. And even as I look out into our congregation and I think about all the challenges that God has put before us the last number of months from Romans, I look at you and I think like Paul, wow, I know you have in you everything you need to live this out. I know that you have the Holy Spirit in you. I know that you have the Word of God in you because you've been, you know, I I don't think I've had so many comments about sermons from weeks and months ago as I've had during this series. And and kind of it's shocking because someone will come to me and say, you know that sermon you preached three months ago or da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da? I'm like, you remember that? I mean, it's amazing. And, And it's encouraging to me, but what it really says to me is, these concepts are taking root in your mind and your hearts. So you, ha- you have the information. You have the knowledge. You have the knowledge of the goodness of the gospel, of the grace of God. You have the understanding that faith is what truly brings us to a place of righteousness, not our own good works. And so with Paul, I feel that conviction as well, that we have it. And it gives, a, it gives me great, great hope. And I think Paul has great hope. But it's funny how he words this because Paul's a master at giving this wonderful compliment and then kind of taking it back a little bit. <laughs> he says, I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, that you have the full, you're full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competence to instruct one another. Yet, I have written you quite boldly. He says, I know you've got it in you, but I had to write to you boldly about some things, about some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me. Let's stop right there. He's saying, I want to remind you of what you already know. And here's the thing about Romans. is I had a number of you tell me through the last months that Romans has intimidated you. Has anyone been intimidated by Romans in your life? Romans is dense, right? Romans can be complicated. Um, it's funny how... Um, you know, in, in one little paragraph, you could have... Ten things that you don't understand. You know what I mean? You could be reading through, and if you don't slow down, you'll just miss the whole thing. You really have to slow down and take it bite by bite and just tease out all the little things that he packs into these sentences. And we don't see it in English, but in Greek, a lot of these paragraphs in our Greek Bible, they might be four or five sentences. In, in Paul's original Greek, it's one sentence. He just, he's just cramming all these ideas and concepts in. And so Romans can be a little intimidating. But really what he's telling us is stuff that we already knew on some level the day we accepted Christ. The day you became a believer, did you not acknowledge that you were a sinner and that you needed a Savior? The day that you became a believer, did you not realize, recognize, and agree with the fact that only the righteousness of Christ could save you? Did you not believe in that moment that all your sins would be forgiven if you would but trust in him? And did you not believe the day you accepted Christ 
that if you relied on him, he would carry you through the rest of the way. But what happens? We, we meet Christ some point in our life. We experience the, the joy of forgiveness, the joy of that freedom, the joy of salvation. And then what happens is we let those, those old ways creep back in. And sometimes we end up more legalistic than when we started. Sometimes we end up more bound to the rules and the laws than before we knew Jesus in the first place. And Paul is saying in this whole book, don't go back to that. Don't, don't go back to the horrible things before. Remain in the joy that you received from Christ in the beginning. And it's really just an outworking of that moment into the entirety of our lives that Paul's looking for in this book of Romans. And he says, I have to write to you about this to remind you. And he says, because the grace God gave me. And when he says that God gave him grace, I think probably a more accurate translation, uh, it's not that, you know, we read this because of, like that God gave him grace. And we think of that word grace as, you know, that forgiveness of sins and the the, the fullness of God in, in, in his presence in our lives. It's almost like he's saying it more like, um, instead of a verb, more like it's a noun, that God gave him a grace. There was a grace that God gave him, and that grace that God gave him was a calling. It was a gift that God gave him. And that gift that he gave him was a calling to the Gentiles, to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul feels that he has the right and even the obligation to communicate to this church in Rome because he has been given a calling to minister this truth to the Gentiles. And it's interesting because, remember, Paul is a Jew. He's a faithful Jew. He, he recounts his pedigree. He says, I'm a, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee. I've been trained in, by the greatest teachers in Israel. You know, by, by my merits, I've got it all. But he understood that in Christ, it was really nothing. That all the things that he had been given at birth, all the things that he had built up in his life, they were nothing compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Nothing compared to the gift of salvation. And then now he's been given this gift of a calling to preach that to the Gentiles. And what Paul doesn't want to see happen is he doesn't want to see the Gentiles in Rome or the Jews in Rome harmed by one another because he cares so much for this calling he has, he reaches out to them. Now, I've thought about this a lot. Um, I've thought about what it would feel like to write a letter of correction to someone else's church. Can you imagine? I mean, I think if we tried for a moment, we could probably all think of a church that we know of that needs some correction. Not ours, of course, right? But other churches. Other churches that you might find in New England. <laughs> churches that maybe are not following the gospel. Churches that are not necessarily preaching God's word. And just think about how much uh, boldness, as Paul uses the word, how much boldness you would need to have 
to write them a letter correcting all their wrongs and then ending it with like something like this. I'm really confident that you guys are going to do the right thing now that I've spoken the truth to you. This is what Paul's doing. We think of the Apostle Paul and we think, oh, the Apostle Paul. Right? This is the guy who the churches that he founded, some of them were being uh, uh, tempted to disregard him as an apostle, like the Corinthian church. They were tempted to think that, oh, Paul's not that big of a deal. And so here's a church that's never even met the guy, and he writes them this letter. And it's almost a wonder that we have it. Because you can imagine a scenario where it arrives and someone grabs it and rips it up and throws it in the garbage. But no, they read it and they took it to heart and they preserved it and they copied it and they shared it. And it's become this masterpiece of, of theology, of Christian living, of understanding the gospel for the last 2,000 years. But Paul's saying, look, I, I couldn't but help to write you because I have this yearning and desire and, and obligation to serve the Gentiles. That's what he said at the beginning, that he's bound to both the Greeks and the non-Greeks, that he's a servant of all. And he wants that this church in Rome that the unity that they would experience as a consequence of this letter, that they would actually be an offering that he can present to God to be received and as, as, as a good offering. And he's using this language, this temple language. You know, he says that he's a, a minister, uh, that he has priestly duties, uh, that he's making an offering acceptable to, acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is temple language. And Paul has in mind, and at this time, the temple was still there. They were still offering sacrifices. He's thinking of that animal without blemish that's brought to the Lord. It's placed upon the altar, and the smoke goes up to heaven, and God smells it, and he's pleased with it. He says that's what the church is going to be. And what a gift that is, not only to Paul, but what a gift it is to us. Because we are the recipients of that work of Paul. We are the recipients now of the blessing that comes from that gift of grace to call Paul to the Gentiles. And not only do we have this letter, but we have 2,000 years of history of Gentile believers coming to Christ in faith and handing down that tradition of hope, of restoration, of salvation for 2,000 years. And that's where we are. We're the recipients of this grace as well. Paul goes on to say, Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus and my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. And there's that word obey. And after all that he's said and done, what do you think he means by obey God? Do you think he's encouraging them to get the rule book out and go down the list and make sure that they're following all the obligations and all the, the different requirements? No. I think what he's saying is God is calling them to live by faith 
And by trusting in Him, they're being obedient. They're being obedient to God by living by faith. And He's saying, look, it's not anything I can do. It's God working through me. Right? It's God working through me. I couldn't make this happen. I can preach faithfully, but the only way that that you're going to live by faith is if the Holy Spirit does the work. And he acknowledges that even as he preaches, it's been affirmed by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. And it might sound like, well, Paul, if you're doing miracles, then it does seem like it'd be easier to get people to believe. And he's saying, yes, it is. But again, I didn't make those miracles happen. He doesn't even say, I perform miracles. He says, by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit of God. God performed the miracles. And, you know, as I, as I think about, you know, this call that he had and how it comes to us. I mean, we've been, we've been going through Romans and, you know, the clear, I know it's complex, I know it's dense, but there's a clarity of his communication that truly is astounding. The things that he can communicate, uh, I mean, honestly, I think if, if we were trying to communicate all he communicated, our book would be, you know, like that thick. It'd be a 250-page book. In, in my Bible, <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, not even 20 pages. It's a letter on parchment. And he packed so much in. And it really is one of these things where it's like the Holy Spirit at work. And of course, that's true of all Scripture. But there's something about God working through the mind of Paul and communicating in such a way that's just powerful. And so as he says here, it's, it's not really even by what I've done. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I think for us, one of the things that we can begin to, you know, this is kind of, again, he's, he's closing out here. He's said all the big stuff he wants to say, and he's kind of like bringing it to an end. And there's a temptation for us to say, to say something like this. Oh, this is just, this isn't hugely important. You know, this is just Paul saying goodbye, right? He's just saying, all right. I've said what I want to say. Let me have my concluding paragraph and then we'll move on. And I think he's actually displaying once more the message that he's been trying to communicate through the whole book. He's saying, guys, after all I've said, you might think, wow, Paul's amazing, which I've kind of just said. But it's not really that I'm amazing. It's that God is amazing because I'm not even doing this in my own strength. My ministry to the Gentiles, that's a grace. That's an unmerited favor and love of God in my life. It's not because I was good, so God called me. I, I mean, he says in other places, I was the worst of the worst, and God called me. It's not that I'm so smart that God called me. All that stuff that I built up before is useless compared to knowing Christ. It's not that I have the ability to perform all these miracles. It's the Spirit that performs the miracles. But he does say this. From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known 
so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. Paul says, everything I have, everything, every moment, every breath, every ounce of energy, I have put towards this calling. I've submitted fully to God. I have trusted him completely. And I haven't held back with no reservation. I've committed myself to this task. And that's why there's power in it. That's why God is at work in it. That's why we, I've seen Gentiles come to faith. And I haven't even been content to preach where the gospel's already been preached. I've intentionally gone to the places where no one else has gone. Much harder ground for sharing the gospel. That's where he goes, and that's where he's seeing God pull through. Because it's in a sense, he's almost saying, I want it to be clear that it's not me, but it's God who's doing the work. So in his life, he's actually embodying the message that he's been teaching for the last 14 and a half chapters. He's saying, even in my life, I do this. And he does it with boldness. And then he gets into, he does get into this kind of thing where it seems like he's just wrapping stuff up. I mean, hear, hear what he says, verse 23. But now there's no more place for me to work in these regions. He's already been to all the places that, that don't know Christ, the, all the places that he has access to. I've been longing for many years to visit you, and I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. From Macedonia and Achaia, we're pleased to make contributions for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owed it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I've completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. Now, again, it just sounds like he's giving the itinerary. Here's the itinerary so you can expect me when I come. But I think, again, he's kind of embodying the message that he's taught. So first of all, he says, you know, I plan to go to Spain because that's where there are Gentiles who don't know about the gospel yet. Now, Paul doesn't ever make it there, right? So Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, he does make it to Rome, but he makes it to Rome in chains. He does not make it to Spain. Uh, he dies in Rome. He, he doesn't, he makes, he, he fulfills his, his goal to go there, but he never leaves. Uh, but he was giving his life fully and unreservedly to the task that God had put in front of him. Not as a means of proving himself worthy. Remember, not, not because uh, there's some rule and requirement on his life, but because he trusted God. And here's the, here's the way this turns out, guys. If you think about it, every single time that we're obedient, not just outwardly, but inwardly also, it's because of trust. And every time we're disobedient, it's because we don't have trust. So I think of it this way, and I, I see it in my own life, and I trust that you'll see it in yours. When God does tell us what he wants us to do, he says, you know, there, there really are 
commandments in Scripture. Paul's not denying that. But he's saying, I don't want you to think of these commandments as um, just this rigid external reality that you have to conform to or else you're going to be punished. So that's not really the way I want you to think of it. I want you to think of the rules and laws like this. God loves you so much and he knows what's best for you and so he has set these commandments and requirements around you for your flourishing. Knowing that your flourishing, Romans 8, is primarily that you would be conformed into the image of Christ, not that you would avoid any hardship. So I'm going to ask you to do things that are going to be hard. I'm going to ask you to do things you won't like. I'm going to ask you to do things that seem contrary to your own will and may even seem unpleasant and difficult. But I'm asking you to do them because there's something better for you in store. And so when you hear that commandment and you obey it, it's because you trust that the better is coming. And when you don't obey it, it's because you don't trust that the better is coming. So for example, biblical principle, do not lie, right? Well, you don't know what I've done. God, you, you, you don't know what's going to happen to me if I tell the truth about what I've done. You don't know how hard it's going to be for me if I confess the reality of my situation. And God's up in heaven saying, no, no, child, I do. I do know how hard it's going to be. And I do know what's in store for you. And I know that although there will be consequences, you're also going to look a little bit more like Jesus tomorrow than you do today when you tell the truth. Or... You know, there's the, uh, the teachings of Scripture around how we engage in our relationships in regards to sexuality and sex and, you know, who we may have sex with and who we may not have sex with and those things. And so someone might say, well, Lord, you don't know. You don't know the temptation I'm facing. You don't know uh, that I might lose this relationship. And God says, no, I do know the temptation you're facing. I do know how hard it is. I do know what could happen to that relationship. But I also know that if you follow these uh, requirements, your life's going to be better. You're going to look more like Jesus. There'll be some loss, but there'll be a lot of gain. And you'll never get that gain if you don't submit to this standard. And you could like, just think of that for every type of rule and obligation that's out there. And although the world's rules are not perfect, it's kind of like the rules of the road. You know, there's a reason there's that yellow line down the middle of the road. It's a, it's a hindrance. It's a barrier. How dare they tell me where to drive? But if you cross that yellow line, you, <laughs> you crash. And we don't want you to crash. So we say, stay to the right of the yellow line. And stay in your lane. Stop at stop signs. You know, have you guys noticed how many people are running red lights these days? That's dangerous. Well, I don't want to be limited. I want to be free. It's like, no. The greatest freedom occurs when you obey the rules. And so when Paul's even, you know, earlier talking about obeying God, it's not so much about 
getting all the rules right. It's about trusting the one who gives the rules in the first place. It's just a different way of thinking about obedience. But it's the kind of thing like, how many of you experienced this? You became a Christian, and a lot of the things that you used to do, I don't know, if, like some people experience this, some don't. Like the day you become a Christian, some of those temptations go away, and you don't even want to do them anymore. I know, I have known people who are hardcore drug addicts. They accepted Christ, and they had never a desire again to go to the drug. I know people who are, you know, living all sorts of sinful lifestyles. Bam. No desire to go back to them and never return to them for the rest of their lives. It's not because they finally, you know, bucked up and did what they were supposed to do. It's that they loved Jesus and God so much and they felt the joy of God in their life so much that those things lost their flavor for them. And they trusted the Lord in that moment so deeply that they couldn't even imagine going in any other way because if you trust God, why would you do something other than what he's calling you to do? It's just a very different way of thinking about the rules and the requirements and the law. And so as Paul's talking about his desire to go where God has called him, there's going to be a moment, if you read about it in Acts, on his way to Jerusalem where they're going to, there's a prophet who's going to tell him, you're going to end up in chains if you go to Jerusalem. Don't go. And it's an accurate prophecy. The, the prophet is right. And Paul says, I don't really care if I end up in chains. I'm going to go because I trust God. And God has called me here. That's not that different from overcoming a temptation to sin. It's really the same kind of function going on in Paul's heart. God called me to do this. I trust him. So whatever the consequences, I'll bear them because I trust God. So whether that's going to Jerusalem or, you know, abstaining from meat sacrifice to idols, as we read about in, you know, the, the obligations that they put on the Gentiles in, in Jerusalem when Paul went to talk to Peter and James and the other leaders in the church or to abstain from sexual morality, or to, you know, or the list of things in Romans chapter 1, worshiping idols and being, dis being disobedient to your parents. And, like, there's this whole list there of things that just don't lead to life. So whether it's him saying he's going to Jerusalem and then going to Spain, knowing that it might kill him, or whether it's being obedient in the other areas, for Paul, it's the same kind of function going on. It's the same kind of trust that guides him, and he's inviting us to be guided by in the same way. In verse 30, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. He says, I've got a struggle. This isn't easy. But out of love, right, join me. Pray for me. And what is the struggle? Pray that I might be kept safe from unbelievers in Judea. Okay? So there's people who are not Christians who, who might be out to get them. They're actually, uh, that's a very well-founded fear because it is unbelievers in Jerusalem who end up accusing him falsely and putting him in prison uh, uh, at, and try to take his life. 
And he says, also that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. So he's concerned about the unbelievers, but he's also concerned about the believers, and specifically the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And that fear was somewhat well-founded as well, because when he gets to Jerusalem, the first thing that happens is, uh, I think it's James who pulls him aside and he says, hey, Paul, here's the deal. A lot of the brothers, uh, a lot of the Jewish brothers here, they think that you're slandering the law of Moses. They think that you've abandoned and that you're teaching Jews not to be obedient, which, uh, you know, I guess they actually hadn't read this letter yet because <laughs> then they might have a little more uh, firepower. Uh, he's not quite what he's doing here, but it, it does seem like that in some ways. And Paul actually, because, because of the very teachings that he has here, because he doesn't, do, he doesn't want to do something that would cause someone else to stumble because he accepts others in Christ because Christ accepted him, Paul agrees to pay for other Jewish believers to go through rites in the temple, Jewish rites in the temple, so that he can put to rest the concerns that the people have of him. So these are well-founded fears that Paul has. He says, pray for me because I'm entering into conflict. But remember what Paul said about Jesus? Jesus went through hardship. Jesus went through struggle. Jesus went through suffering. If I want to be a co-heir with Christ in glory, then I also need to share with him in his sufferings. Romans 8 also. Because he knows that all those who are called, that God will work out all things for the good of those who he calls and are called according to his purposes, who love God and are called according to his purposes. He says, if I'm doing God's will, I know it's going to work out well for me. When Paul gets arrested, he seems, in a weird way, almost excited that they're going to shuttle him off to Rome because he thinks that maybe I'll get to share the gospel with the emperor. All things work to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Paul is not worried about his death. He's only worried about living out of faith in God. And so his life is a testimony of the message that he's been preaching. And it almost makes the issues that he's brought up about eating meat or following a holy day or all the issues. What are all the issues that we brought up last two weeks? Things like smoking or, or uh, what, Sabbath, how you keep the Sabbath. It almost makes all of those issues seem strangely irrelevant and small compared to Paul's willingness to die because he has trust in Jesus. He's like, and he doesn't rub it in their face. He just like, matter of fact, oh yeah, I'm going to Jerusalem. Uh, pray for me because I'm going to face opposition from the believers and from the unbelievers. But pray for me because I, I'd like to come back to you with joy by God's will and your company be refreshed. And the God of peace be with you all. Amen. That's how Paul ends this chapter. And what I think is going on is I think this was Paul's end of the letter. And that's how he ends a lot of his letters. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Those are his closing words. He's saying, this is the kind of life I live. And this is the authority by which I ask you to live the same way. 
So it's not just throwaway lines at the end of the letter. It's not just, uh, you know, hope to see you soon. Sincerely, Stephen. <laughs> you know, it's not that. He is, he's displaying in himself the call that he's given them as a community. By the way, Paul is as afraid of the conflict. Why, why would the Jewish believers not accept financial gifts from Gentile churches in the Roman Empire? Because the very thing that he's trying to teach them to overcome is a widespread problem throughout the church in the world. He's, a, he's literally afraid that they're going to look at his financial gift he's bringing and scorn it. This is how bad it is. But in his own life, he says, oh, I accept these people. I love these people because Christ died for them and Christ died for me and who am I not to accept them? And so all, everything that he does in his life, he's living out these same realities over and over again. And he's saying, that's the authority I have to share this with you. It's my own life. Now, we'll talk about it next week. I think what happened was he found out who was going to send who was going to actually physically take the letter to Rome. So he writes a little second ending to give her a letter of introduction, which is fascinating as well. We're going to talk about that next week. But his final word is, I'm coming and I want to come with joy. So contend with me as I contend for the gospel. Contend with me in prayer. And don't just, you know, oh, say a little prayer. Like, no, join me in my struggle. Join me in my struggle. You've been struggling, and I've given you a way out of that struggle. Now you join me in my struggle as I continue to fight the good fight, as I continue to serve the Lord, as I continue to give my entire life for the grace of being the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, you and I are not called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, You and I are not called probably to die for the gospel You and I probably are not called to travel the world to do these things. But here's what I do know. Just like Paul, we can live out the call God's given us, the grace God has given us to live in love by accepting one another in Christ. And I can go on to say, I believe we can live like Paul out of the grace God's given us to trust the Lord in all things. And that whatever call he's placed on your life, that you truly can live in such a way that displays your trust in God above the consequences and above the circumstances. And I think that's the call. I think that's the call for each and every one of us. This is not just for the super apostles. This is not just for the pastors and the elders. This is not just for the you know, people who went to seminary. It's every single one of us in Christ. God has given us an invitation and we can live in such a way to display that we trust him so much that we'll do what he asks regardless of what will come. Because we know that what will come will be for our good. We know that every time we say yes to God and no to something else, we become a little bit more like Jesus that day. And that's the end game. That's the end game of all of this is that at the end, we will look like a mirror of Jesus Christ. Church, I want to invite you to reflect on that. I want to invite you to ask the Lord right now, God, 
what's something you're asking me today? Maybe that I've been resisting. But where you're asking me to say yes today so that tomorrow I'll look a little bit more like Jesus. Not out of some, you know, oversized sense of commitment to the rules, but because I really do trust you that if you ask me to do something, it's for my good. That if you ask me to do something, the consequences might be steep, but the outcome will be beautiful. And let's see what God speaks to each one of us in this moment.